Sermon number 728, What's New in Protestant Christianity, preached in the First Presbyterian Church of Bakerstown on Sunday, October 26, 1975. The text is taken from Galatians, the fifth chapter, verses 1 through 14. Follow along as I read Galatians, the fifth chapter, beginning at the first verse. Freedom Christ has set us free. Stand fast, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is bound to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is of any avail, but faith, faith working through love. How you are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who called you. A little yeast leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and he who is troubling you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But if I, brethren, still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? In that case, the stumbling block of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would mutilate themselves. For you are called to freedom, brethren. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, be servants of one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Amen and amen. A week seldom, seldom passes that the same question is not asked. What's new in the church, Reverend? And you know that, that inquiry always puzzles me, for I'm never quite sure what it is the questioner is asking. Does he want to know new trends in theology? Does he mean what are the specific programs we have at Bakerstown Church? Or is he looking for just a little bit of new dirt that he can cast along the gossip line? No matter what reason the question, the answer is always the same. Nothing! Nothing's new in the Protestant Christian Church, and that's true. Nothing has been made new in the Protestant Christian Church in our more than 450 years of history. Nothing new. And get out your history books, and you'll read that when the young Augustinian monk Martin Luther took a scrap of paper upon which he had written his 95 theses and had 
had taken the hammer and tacks and nailed them to the castle door at Wittenberg, which was something like a university bulletin board. When he did that, he had no intention whatsoever of starting a new religion or a new faith. Studies on Calvin, Zwingli, Hobbes, Wycliffe, and that old Scotchman, John Knox. And you'll find that our forefathers, who were now, who are now enshrined as fathers of the Reformed Movement, they had no more intention in starting a new faith than you and I have today, worshiping this place, intend to propagate a new idea or a new faith or a new religion. No, no. They saw themselves as being people who were concerned about one church. People who looked at that church upon the great sea of history and thought of it as a ship. A ship that had gathered barnacles and had lost her way. A ship who had gone through storms and had her sails tattered and torn. A ship who in the midst of all sorts of voyages had lost some of the cargo and had some of its equipment thrown overboard. And they saw themselves bringing that old ship into a dry dock, not to scuttle the old lady, but rather to carefully remove those barnacles, sew up those torn sails, replenish that equipment, and send that old ship back out into the same waters, this time though on her proper course. Those reformers had only one thing in mind, and that was to revive the old religion and to once again recontinue and establish a connection between their just faith. Though the church chose to excommunicate Martin Luther, even when he was on his deathbed, he still claimed he was a Roman Catholic, not trying to find a new faith called Protestantism, but only trying to reform the old faith. That's what it's all about. Justification by faith was not new to Martin Luther. It was much older than his eyes could imagine, or his thoughts know. You see, that Martin Luther was raised in a particular church, a medieval church, that taught and believed, as some churches still believe today, that the way that you get God to like you is through doing good works. Martin Luther heard sermons and was taught that God is rather angry. And that God was saying, Martin, do good works and I'll love you. So he, together with many other people then and now, believed and believe that the way that you earn God's love is to work for it. To do good works. Do some good works, God will love you. Do more good works and God will love you the more. It's what we call a justification by works. You earn God's love. 
And he'd been trained in that way. And he thought that if a Christian could earn God's love, a Christian full-time would even earn more of God's love. So he became a monk. And he wasn't just any ordinary monk. He became an exemplary monk. I even read in a history book a couple years ago, he got up at 2 a.m. in the morning to say his prayers. Bet you don't do that. If I did, I'm afraid I'd fall asleep again. But that was his idea of trying to please God so that God would love him. But he had a sensitive conscience. And poor Martin, like anybody who has a sensitive conscience, he never felt that he got on the credit side of God's love. No matter how many prayers he said, he knew he could always pray one more. No matter how many good works he did, he knew he could have done more. No matter how many sins he'd asked to be forgiven, he knew that there were others that were unforgiven. The harder he tried, the further behind he got. He found out like so many people, but to try to justify yourself in the eyes of God by doing good works is a dead-end street. And if you're the least bit sensitive to your conscience, you'll never find satisfaction there. So Martin Luther turned to the Bible, and he read, and he read, and he studied his Bible. The book of Romans, Psalms, and the book of Galatians, and I really think this very passage that I read in your hearing today. And when he read these passages, he found that another, the Apostle Paul, someone who had preceded him by 1,500 years, he was in the same box. Poor Paul felt that by trying to justify himself by obeying the law, God would love him, but it didn't work for Paul. And Martin Luther picked up his ears and he opened his eyes and he thought, thought, I'm in the same boat that Paul was in. And he studied further. And he rediscovered what Paul had discovered. He found a new, a very old idea that had come from Paul. And we believe Paul got it from the Holy Spirit. That the way that you are justified with God is not by what man does for God, but by accepting what God has already done for man. And when Martin began to think about that, a burden was lifted from his back, he got that skip in his step, that joy in his soul, and he smiled for the first time in his life. And he found a power and he found a faith. He was justified, not by works, but by faith. That's not a new concept, ladies and gentlemen. Maybe some of you are hearing it for the first time now, but that concept is over 1,900 years old. It's not new. Neither is another doctrine which was reborn at the time of the Reformation. The authority of the Word of God. You see, at the time, almost... About 500 years ago. This particular book was thought of, as some people think it today, a very good book. It's God's Word. But in that day, God's Word really was not any greater than the Pope's Word or the Preacher's Word or Tradition's Word. 
And people weren't having, as they are today, a very difficult time in finding an authority which they could count upon 100% of the time. You know, that, that's what it's all about today. We're having arguments as to where rests our authority. <clears throat> Martin Luther found his in the Bible. He said that the Bible should always be open, and he means not just the pages spread wide, but he means the Bible should be open to the minds of people. One of the first things he did was to take the New Testament and to translate it into the common tongue of the German people. Up to this time, only preachers could read the Bible, and the average layman, he didn't know what was in it except what the preacher told him. But now the people have access to the Word of God firsthand. And people read the Bible. And people began to see that this is the word for our lives. And for the first time since a long time way back when the word became flesh in Jesus Christ, people found a source for their authority. And no longer when there was a conflict between the Pope and the Bible did the Pope win. No, no. The Bible was considered the only rule for faith and practice. It alone was considered the sole authority. Now, the Bible is not an easy book to read, as you know. And there's scholarship that the Holy Spirit is continuing to bless, to bring us up to date. But, ladies and gentlemen, this is God's Word to us today. By the power of the same Spirit interpreting to us as He worked through those through whom He wrote. That's it. The authority of Scripture. When there is a question as to which or who is right, this is the last word. The doctrine of the authority of Scripture. That concept's not new. Neither is that idea that we have called in the last 450-some-plus years the priesthood of all believers. Yes. Martin Luther, in his particular day, the idea was that you really could not have access to God without a priest helping you to do so. Now, Martin Luther was not interested in putting the clergy union out of business. No, no. But he was getting people interested in the idea, yes, we need priests to help one another find God, but we are all priests. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you are a reverend. You are an individual who has a responsibility to forgive other people, to give other people, to help teach other people, and to love other people. We belong to the priesthood of believers. We all have the responsibility, not just the clergy, but everybody has the responsibility to help preach and teach and to live the gospel of Jesus Christ. That idea is not new. That's old, very, very old. It comes out of the Bible. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's own people. That's not new. And neither is the fourth idea. The idea that we have in the doctrine of the calling. It's a rather difficult phrase to use, but what it basically means 
is that there's no distinction between clergy and laity. It means, as it did back in the day of the Reformation, in its beginning, that there should not be any great distinction between those two great words, secular and sacred. There was, in that time, a great distinction, especially in terms of vocation. The idea was that uh, to be a really outstanding Christian, you had to be a monk. And though you could be a Christian by being a candlestick maker, a butcher, or a baker, you were only a second-rate Christian. This doctrine of the Reformation says that there are no such distinctions between Christians. We are all people who are called with a specific vocation, and that is to praise the Lord and to do the work wherever we have been called by the grace of God. You see, this is my pulpit here. But you people, you have a pulpit. You have one down in Pittsburgh. You have one in Gateway Center. You have one in Mars. You have one in the schoolroom. You all have pulpits, you see. And your job is just the same as that of Mr. Bruder's and my own. And that is to be a witness to the living spirit of Jesus Christ and to proclaim the message that is given to us, to all the world, that God is love and that God forgives when you confess and that God wants us to be filled with the joy, the happiness, and the power that comes with being a son or daughter of the living God. These are all old ideas. There's nothing new under the sun. And there's nothing new in the Protestant Christian Church. And if some of you have come here today expecting to hear something new, some new idea in radical theology, some new concept in sociology or psychology, I'm sorry, you're going to leave disappointed. Because, you see, the mission of the Protestant Christian Church is not to look for new things, but it is to be constantly reforming the old things, proclaiming the same message we knew and heard in Jesus Christ, and allowing people to change and to become new. See, in Protestantism, there's nothing new. There's only new people. New people. And if you came here today with the idea you want to lead a new kind of life, if you want to find that new power which God offers in Jesus Christ, if you're a little tired of your old life and you want to start all over again, you're a new person and you can do it. We have a few hands to shake and a few people to greet. But if someone here today is hearing these old, old things with your new ears, I'd like to talk to you before you leave here today. And if you want to talk with me, I'd like to see you on the balcony after a few moments of this worship service when it's concluded. Because no matter how old or tired you may feel, I have good news for you of the old faith. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Father, we thank you very, very much for all you've given us. It's far more than what we deserve. Yet you've called us to be alive. You've given us this opportunity to be awake. And you're still, still speaking in the same old way. Help us, Father. Help us in this day when we seem to be part of a changing society, when the tendency is to try to find security in hopping and jumping from one thing to another. Help us to realize that our priesthood, our authority, our justification, and our lives are to be found in you. You who art the same yesterday, today, tomorrow, and forever. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of his Holy Spirit be and abide with you now and forever.